Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi everyone, this is Mark Nicholas and welcome to Not Just Cricket. What a series we've had so far. A deep dive inside the mind of Virat Kohli. A brilliant listen to the journey and ethos that has driven Eddie Jones. And then last week we had Dr. Sarah Fain for company. This week my guest is another woman whose work continues to receive loud applause and much recognition. Claire Balding has received an OBE for her work both as broadcaster and journalist, as well as campaigning for and endorsing opportunities for women in and around sport. She's as famous on radio as on television, and her show Ramblings has walked and talked to us for more than 20 years. As it happened, I began with a bit of a ramble myself. Okay, you ready to go? Yeah. I've just eaten a huge piece of Christmas cake to go with this cup of tea. I'm addicted to Christmas cake. Oh, well, that's, that, that's fine until we get to April, when by which time you probably should stop eating it. What, particularly if it's the same Christmas cake? Yes. Well, although it does it means, last, doesn't it? Depends how much alcohol's in it. But It's a lot of brandy in it. It does oh, mean I've only eaten little bits of it. There's the upside. Ah. Um, Claire, I watched you on the BBC Sports Personality of the Year. Um, Did you? And I thought, God... I wonder when Claire started, and I looked it up, and I thought, "Oh, 1995. The girl's done well. I mean, it's a it's a long time, isn't it, to be right at the top of your game?" And and I wondered how much the business had changed. I started in, I suppose, '95, and I often laugh at how little it's changed. I mean, other than digital recordings, but what we do is very similar, isn't it? Well, actually, just on the technical side, Five Live was just starting in, in 1995. It just started, so. I was given a job as a trainee in BBC Radio Sport, which I thought was just the best Mm. thing ever. I loved it. But we used to cut tape with razor blades, physically cut tape and stitch it together with little white tape. I loved doing interviews, but I liked then crafting them into something that sounded slightly better than it was when it first happened. So you'd edit your own interviews on a reel-to-reel old tape recorder but that was quite fun so Mm. technology wise it has changed a lot it's much more mobile now you can be more agile but I'd be interested to know what you think Mark because you know I wanted to always be a general sports presenter and that used to be the thing that was the top of the tree and now everything's so specialized that it's almost sneered at to be a generalist you know and have no particular... Well, I mean, obviously, I used to have racing, but I don't even do a specialist sport anymore. I was the same. I always wanted to be a sports presenter. But because I'd played cricket professionally, 
that was a leg up because so much of your early days are credibility dependent, aren't they? So in your case, it was the world of racing. In my case, the world of cricket. But although I've done golf and I've done the Olympic Games, I haven't spread my wings to quite or anything like the extent that you have, primarily because it's been difficult to. I was pigeonholed quickly and all the best offers came in specifically to cricket. So I think that's why, whereas you've managed to, to keep not just in sport, you know, Ramblings has been very big for you. Doing all sorts of other broadcasting has been very important for you and your focus, I think, in the early days on radio. Yeah, I mean, I, I really love radio. I still love radio. And going on television is quite a performance for me because it's such a visual medium and because you're judged so much. Men are too, but women are viciously judged on how they look. So you have to play a role, whereas I always feel mm. in radio I don't have to play a role. But interestingly, really early on in 1996, I got the chance to go to my first Olympic Games in Atlanta to do the equestrian sport. But at the same time, I got offered a job on a new channel that was starting that was going to be the racing channel for a phenomenal amount of money compared to what I was being paid as a trainee sports reporter on a fledgling radio station. That's the key moment. That's the sliding doors moment because I said no to the money. And I said yes yeah. to the experience. And God, I thought I'd made a massive mistake here. I thought, I, I, you know, how could I do what a stupid thing to do? All my friends who were at university with me were off earning, you know, big bucks and could afford to live in London. And at that time, I couldn't. I was still living with my parents and driving up for the days that I was working. And it felt like a really big moment, but I knew more than anything, I knew I wanted to go to the Olympics. It mattered so much to me. And I think because of my eventing dreams as a child, that that's, that was always the, the Olympics was the ultimate goal. And racing, I love, you know, obviously it's been my background, it's been my family, but it slightly felt I could enjoy racing, you know, through my father's achievements and then my brother's achievements. It didn't have to be me and I always worried a bit that people say oh, you only got that interview because whereas in other sports they couldn't say that that you got an interview in anything because of my surname because it wouldn't be true it's very clear though that you enjoy sport at large rather than just a specific sport or two which most people I think would pick as being you know they'd pick in my case I'd pick cricket and golf and a bit of football and a bit of rugby union as my main sort of four things whereas I think you there's a certain clarity in your broadcasting that brings across this joy of sport yeah I do I love I love what sport can do and I think specifically for me the two areas that where I think it has a much much bigger impact than what happens on the field of play are women's sport and Paralympic sport and obviously I've been hugely involved in both and to see the the growth in stature of both has been one of the great joys of my working life. And I was watching a documentary called Rising Phoenix on Netflix. And I've covered the Paralympics since 2000. But also I've never seen such beautiful cinematic treatment of Paralympic athletes. It's it's really phenomenal. And women's sport, you look at the progress it's made commercially. But to me, more important is how much people have latched onto it. And I only feel that in the last sort of four or five years has there been enough public attention and interest and enough information out there that the story is beginning to be told by others. Very interesting too, how with the exposure, so the standards have risen 
dramatically, particularly, I think, in the last seven or eight years, in all sports, that women now can play so easily at the high level that they couldn't before. Yeah, I mean, and you love your golf. I know, but have you played with a female pro ever? Oh, yeah, amazing. I have, yeah. I played with Charlie Hull, actually. Oh, have you? Yeah, and it's jaw-dropping. And it's not only jaw-dropping in the talent, it's the confidence. It's the sheer, it's fine, I'm good enough, I'll play anybody, no matter who I play, and I can play any shot, and I can play it under pressure, and it's cool. Yeah, and I think the attitude of a lot of men has changed as well. I remember years ago playing in a pro-am down in Kent, and we had a female pro, and the other two guys on the team said, oh, well, we'll see how many times we use your drive to her. Well, of course we used her drive every time, it was Texas Scramble. We used her drive every time, what were they thinking? They honestly thought they could outdrive her. And I, I just, I remember thinking, God, she has to deal with this on a daily basis of people just not realising how good they are. And that's the struggle for respect combined with the struggle for reward has been pretty exhausting for a lot of female athletes. And I'm so glad now that we have a generation of girls who can look at cricket or golf or tennis or, or football and starting to be rugby union and starting to be rugby league, but not quite there yet in terms of a salary. But the other sports they can look at and say, I can do that as a living. I can say to my careers teacher, I would like to be a cricketer. And they're not going to laugh at me. When you began this journey in, in 95, did you feel you were right at the start fighting that battle? There weren't that many women broadcasting at the top level of sport in this country. So were you on a mission from the start? I probably was. And uh, mainly because the biggest resistance I had to the idea of me broadcasting came from my father, who said, well, you can't do that, and kept saying, you can't do that. And, and, and bless him, because, y you know, I adore him, but doesn't half act as a driver to prove that you can? Mm. And I do a hell of a lot of prep because I don't want to be caught out. You're going to make mistakes. Of course you are. It's live television. We're all going to make mistakes. And recovering from them is one of the great skills that you learn. But actually, in the early days, I was quite naive. And I think I just thought, wow, this is great. I'm on this amazing ride. And I was lucky because I was surrounded by really good people at Five Live. You know, Peter Drury, John Champion, Marcus Buckland was a good friend of mine, Mark Pugach. It was a really good gang, largely male. I think at that stage I was the only... Eleanor Oldroyd obviously was, was on, on air and was absolutely brilliant to me, so supportive. And she showed me how to be with younger presenters now. And I try and do that and be helpful. But they were more on Radio Claire than on TV. Yeah. TV was a different world. And you made the point that women are constantly challenged for, for how they look. And, and that self-conscious aspect of being on television is far more difficult than perhaps people might understand on the outside. It looks straightforward enough. But <laughs> there's a lot to think about, not least yourself. Well, I probably didn't think about it enough, to be honest. You know, I sort of felt... I had to know things because I couldn't count on anything else. So you've got to really take it in and absorb what you're watching, be, be fast of brain as well. Because some of the trick is actually in the end, not showing all your homework. Do it. But God, it's dull if all you hear is somebody giving a whole load of information. For example, in, the, in a question, almost answering the question and not letting somebody else answer it. So that's belief or confidence had to be based on a solid foundation and for me that solid foundation was going to be prep it was going to be homework it was you know are women getting enough space in the world of 
broadcasting? Are you comfortable with where women well, sit now? Yeah, there's certainly a lot, getting... of, a lot of very good women on the BBC. I mean, Hazel Irvin isn't around anymore, but they were sort of golden period of you and Sue and Gabby and Hazel all at the same time being much the best at what you did. Yeah, and Hazel is around. She She's taken a bit of a, a year out, but she absolutely will be involved in the Tokyo Olympic coverage. Oh, great. And so will Gabby and so will I, obviously. Ailey Barber, I think, sensational. Ali Mitchell. But I think in football, actually, that's where the big sudden burgeoning has come. So Rachel Brown, Finnis, Karen Carney, Alex Scott. And I worked with Alex on Sports Personality yeah. of the Year this year, first time she'd done it. And that was really fun. And I'm very conscious of wanting to make sure that they have the best experience. So if I'm working with pundits, we will have a long conversation before we go on air about the areas we're going to cover. I don't want them ever to feel that it's a competition of any no. sort of... of and also because I don't know a lot about football, frankly. So when I'm doing women's football, I'm very grateful for their help. Claire, what about the girl on the Masters? I think the Sky... Um, Cara? Cara, was Cara. it? Banks, I think. Has Banks, it. Yeah. thank you. Cara, Cara Banks. Banks, Claire. She's brilliant. Not yeah. easy to ask questions of golfers when they come off the course because they tend to... They're pretty good golfers, but they tend immediately, of course, to go off pat on the round of golf itself rather than the emotional side of it. And she touched upon that as well. Yeah, no, she's really, really good. And I think that's, you talked earlier about confidence. And I think there is a gathering confidence amongst young female broadcasters that I'm not sure. I mean, I might have had it, but but only out of, you know, ignorance. <laughs> I'm hoping now that there is, you know, real feeling of, yeah, we deserve to be here. We have every right and we're going to enjoy this. And because mm. as soon as you relax enough to enjoy it, you know, Ali Mitchell, good case in point. Her commentary is so good, but I think it, it made a real leap when she could relax enough, when she felt accepted into the TMS team and then could just go, all right, then I'm here on merit and I can play with this. It's growing so fast because as soon as it happens from a handful, suddenly now you've got probably 100 or certainly 60 women getting really good experience in different networks, on radio and on television, in different sports and through event coverage as well. And that's massively different. That's great. OK, just a short break for a word from our sponsors. Welcome back. I'm Mark Nicholas and you're listening to Not Just Cricket. Let's get back to the interview. I want to ask you about, you know, who you learnt from. I, I learnt a lot from Michael Parkinson because we knew each other through cricket and I talked to him a lot. And he has a great, I suppose you call it a mantra, which is that you're the middleman between the subject, which is the sport, and the audience, which is the viewer at home. And your job is to be that conduit, to get one to the other uh, without irritating the one watching at home. Therefore, you need an ego to do the job, but you cannot have an ego in the job. And I thought it was a very interesting way of looking at the presentation of sport on television. Who taught you and, and all these gifts? Who, where did where they well, come from? Well, I had a lot. <laughs> in my year as a as a trainee reporter, I was sent on various courses. So I did writing for radio, editing, interview technique. I went to local radio for a bit, but I also went to one of Parkey's lectures. I asked him a question about difficult interviewees because I find it really interesting when people don't give you what you want them to give. The, the chemistry's gone wrong somehow. Why? And so I'm really fascinated and I watch people... You know, Graham Norton is a really properly brilliant interviewer. Isn't he? Yeah. Oh, uh, 
and he will incredible, get people no, to yeah, say incredible. things, but he creates an atmosphere where everybody feels they're in a safe space. And having been on the show as well as watching the show, he's got an awful lot of warmth, but he's very clever and he knows how to make it good telly. I find that really interesting and I love watching different people and different techniques and you watch and you learn and you read books and you kind of think about it intellectually, not emotionally, and then try and make it come alive. And in a sense, the ego bit, I'm a lot, I sort of feel like I'm over that. I'm not doing it for me or my profile. When London 2012 happened, and obviously amazing, just an amazing event, the best event I've ever worked on, will ever work on, full stop, just great, both Olympics and Paralympics. I made a conscious decision to turn the vision out, not in. And it was right around the start of Twitter. It would have been the first Twitter Olympics. And I didn't look because I couldn't take all that in as well. And that then taught me I don't need to look. And I think a lot of people now are dealing with issues created by a forum that they don't need to participate in without some sort of protection. Let's stop at the 2012 Olympics uh, for a minute because I also worked on them, but for Australian television. Uh, The Saturday evening with Jessica Ennis, Mo Farah and uh, uh, Chris uh, Rutherford. and and Greg, uh, Greg Rutherford. Greg, I mean, just that, that, I would pick that evening above anything I've seen in sport. Uh, I thought that the atmosphere, the joy... The achievements, I mean, crikey, that was my greatest night in sport. That day started, though, with Catherine Granger and Anna Watkins winning gold. It was Catherine Granger's first Olympic gold medal after four consecutive silver medals. And I love stories of persistence and perseverance and, you know, repeated failure followed by glorious success. And I I just thought that epitomised that tale and their combination was really interesting and what they both brought to the boat, but what they brought to each other's brains and how they worked. And I just I was thrilled for them. And also I was at the show jumping when Great Britain won team gold for the first time since... 56 or 60, but anyway, long time. But that team, for them to win that gold medal was such a huge moment for British equestrian sport. And Charlotte Dujardin obviously had won, you know, two gold medals in the in the dressage as well. And the British dressage team would never been considered medal hopes before. And they were fabulous. And it was, it was extraordinary. So for me, a lot was happening in Greenwich. And that was my sort of second week home for the Games. But I also really remember I was at the XL to do Nicola Adams's fight. And obviously women's boxing had never been in the Olympics before. And Katie Taylor was on the card that night too and won gold medal for Ireland. There were more Irish in that stadium. I, I, I'd never been anywhere where one nation other than the host nation had been so dominant. Hmm. But the Irish had got hold of tickets and my God, they were going to make the most of it. It was absolutely brilliant. The atmosphere was really incredible and so warm and fun and friendly and passionate. And, and they were thrilled because, you know, Ireland don't win Olympic gold medals. I mean, it it rarely happens. And it was such a joy when it did. The one event, I don't want to dwell on this forever, but the one event that, that sort of surprised me the most, I think live, I, I took my daughter to the gymnastics one evening. And we watched them on the pole vault and the parallel bars. And I, you really do have to be there to, to feel the power of it. Never mind the, the timing, the balance, the enormous strength involved, the, 
the mental ability to compete and to be so flawless, so detailed within that speed and power. Oh, my God. I know. And also, when you go, there's so much going on at the same time. A bit like the athletics, you know, there's that going on. Yeah, all over the place. Yes. So like, where am I meant to yeah. look? Dotted all over the place. Yeah. Uh, let's keep rambling. Let's go John McEnroe. From the outside looking in, that is some personality, some brain, arguably the best sports pundit. You know, I don't like that phrase much, but best expert on sport, perhaps on television anywhere in the world. Tell us about being with John. You learn very quickly that he's not going to turn up until 10 seconds before you're on air. And you mustn't panic because he will get there. John will cut through the crowd wearing a flasher's Mac and a baseball cap. So nobody sees him. He keeps his head down and he comes up to the platform and he literally gets there as the opening music is, is coming on. So essentially you learn you're not going to make conversation with him but he's going to be brilliant and he will answer anything you ask him on air. He also is really protective because the first time I did the highlights, we'd made a lot of changes and we were getting slammed in the papers with some justification. And we moved the location, which was the, the biggest issue. And I really wasn't, really was not reading it. I was aware of it, but I wasn't reading it because it would destroy me if I did. But my mum, who doesn't often ring me for a chat, would ring me every day just to check I was all right because she was reading it. <laughs> she was actually, she was, she's really good in a crisis. And she rang every day. But it kind of got to the stage where you didn't have a chance to put it right because the papers were still printing stuff about the programme two days before. And you'd already put out one that was better, but they're still going. Anyway, it became this thing that we couldn't really control. And at the end of the week, I said thank you to the pundits and John was on, obviously, doing the final. And he said, can I just say something? He said, Claire, good job and well done getting through it. And it was never as bad as they said it was. And basically said something really supportive on air. I sort of looked at him because I was really stunned. No one had ever done that before. I didn't realise how much he was aware of it, but also that he was being quite protective of me, which was very sweet. And I thought, God, thank you. That's really kind. I didn't ask you to do that. And and you just sort of think, well, I'll do anything for you, actually. Oh, mm. yeah, I can't imagine a situation where I can help John McEnroe, but I would. You know, I absolutely would. I was very taken and touched by that. Uh, you mentioned your mum. I mean, I've read, looking, sort of doing research the last couple of days, I've read that she wasn't one to wrap her arms around, around you and give you a kiss and a cuddle. No, but I think, is your mum like that? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I think women of a certain generation... <laughs> In, in Britain, no, my, no, my mum's ninety and 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 still very much, you know, would put her arms. Around. I mean, I suppose not, not in a gushing way, but but yes, yeah, kissing a cuddle, yes. Yeah, and I don't say it with any criticism. It's just the way, you know, Alice's mum was very different, was very tactile. Would ring every, you know, would ring Alice every single yeah. day, and she died a few years ago, and I still kind of miss the phone ringing and hearing Alice talk to her about everything that was going on. But my mum rings to tell me things. You know, and that's why it was so unusual during that Wimbledon that she was ringing every day just to see how I was. Yeah. And, for, and I'd be out walking in the mornings, usually listening to a tennis podcast, but I had to keep walking in the mornings because otherwise, you know, it's the one way I can keep my head straight. Yeah. We had your dad in the commentary box, you know. Oh, did you? Um, Yes, he came into the Channel 5, doing the Channel 5 highlights a couple of years ago. And he came in and had an hour with us. God, he knows he knows his cricket. He loves the game. Yeah, he does. He was a good cricketer, actually. And I remember 
sort of one that you asked me earlier about who do you learn from? One of my earliest broadcasting heroes was Terry Wogan. And I met Terry Wogan when I was about seven or eight at a cricket match at Highclere Castle. And dad was playing for Porchies 11, I guess. I, I met Terry Wogan and he gave me a signed photo and I just thought, God, you're amazing. And, and then obviously I knew him and I've worked with him a bit and he used to cover the actually Olympics before I started. He certainly covered Barcelona. And his theory was always to not take it too seriously. And he had the most fantastic attitude. I, I bumped into him at an airport once and I wanted to tell him everything I'd been doing. And he just looked at me after two minutes and he went, Claire, 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 slow down. You're exhausting me now. <laughs> well, yeah. well, oh, yeah, well, there we go. There we go, Claire. Uh -huh. uh, you, do you do too much? I certainly don't at the moment. And I don't think I have for a few years. But if you get your moment, and there's no doubt, I mean, I've never had more offers in my life than after 2012. And believe me, I said no to a hell of a lot. But I probably said yes to a few things that were interesting or different or I felt would take me in a different direction. And I didn't want to give up ramblings. I mean, no. all logic would have said, well, give that up and go and do the fancy TV entertainment show. But I didn't want to stop doing ramblings. And I'm really glad I didn't. So I felt torn between loyalty to the programmes that I had done for a long time and then excitement, obviously, at new opportunities. So there was a time when I was pretty busy. But you kind of go, well, I'm glad. I mean, I, you know, there's a couple of things that I've learned from that I wouldn't necessarily want to do again. But I'm still glad I did them. And now I have lovely time to write books and things, so that's not a sign of somebody who's doing too much if you've got time to write a book. Yeah. You mentioned <laughs> ramblings. I mean, that's walk and talk in its best possible guise. You just love the countryside then, yes? I do, and I love talking to people, and I think people reveal an awful lot. Funny enough, we just did Annika Rice for the, for the new series, and... <laughs> She lives not far from me and we went on a walk that I did this morning. So it's a walk I know really well. And I had to remind myself to describe it because I know it well and you kind of get a bit, you know, blasé about it. She, in the first half hour, had told me more about her life than I've ever heard from anyone. And at the end of it all, she then had a complete panic attack that she'd revealed too much. And it'll be fine. It'll be absolutely fine and we'll make sure it's fine. But there's something about walking with someone that makes you and them reveal way more than you ever intended mm. and I love it for that and I think it's because you're both looking out but I think it's also just because you're doing something together over a long mm. period of time and things come and they yeah. go and they you know so just so everybody understands you know your father trained Mill Reef <laughs> the Derby the Arc de Triomphe King George VI and Queen Elizabeth Stakes your brother of course casual look Epsom Oaks and many other horses Uncle Toby gold cups I mean you have this amazing history with racing in your family so I rang your brother and I asked him about you and he cited energy enthusiasm and intelligence as three of your greatest strengths and gifts he talked about how driven you were your love of hard work is pretty well known and you've talked about that in a lot of interviews it's almost a proof of life it seems to me sometimes with you what does interest me though is another gift he spoke about he said when you move into subjects that are not within your comfort zone, you have an ability to pick six aspects of them and to know those six aspects so well that you will come over as a relative expert in that field and it will get you through the presentation of the subject or the interviews required to bring them to life. Is that a fair appraisal of Claire Balding? 
Well, that's very insightful of him. I didn't realise that I'd done that and I didn't know that six was a... I, I certainly, it's about right. He's about right. It would be about six, actually. The other thing that I have always tried to do, because so few people do, is I will be very aware of the history of a sport because I find it fascinating. So whether it's the history of the Olympics or the history of a sport like rugby league, why it was formed, when it was formed, what it's about, a couple of key dates, six key facts, but a greater understanding and most important, listen listen to the experts. I spent the whole time I was presenting rugby league, most of what I did was listen to them. Mm. Makes a huge difference. Claire, I just want to finish with a simple question. You've achieved so much. I mean, really, the accolades are not only well-deserved, but they come in so many different fields of your work. Um, Do you think you'll ever stop working? I, I suddenly thought to myself, I can almost imagine, Claire, when you know, we're all said and done, still doing mornings on BBC Berkshire, or, you know, whatever, it may, whatever it may be. Well, funny know. enough, my brother listens to BBC Berkshire and he'd think that was very much making it. So I wouldn't rule oh, that well, out. Yeah, are, yeah. I mean, I do love radio. I think, unfortunately, in terms of television, very few women get the luxury of carrying on until they drop. Um, it doesn't work that way. But who knows? Joan Bakewell, certainly, and Mary Beard and various others still working on telly yeah. into their yeah. 70s and... I, 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are other things I would like to do. And sort of whether it's the executive side of television or radio or whether it's writing more, which I'd love to do. Um, I'd love to write a best-selling novel. <laughs> But You've written a lot of books, right? Children, children's books. Mm. I mean, and and fantastic. adult books, yeah, yeah. So it's been yeah. it's it's interesting. You have a very different relationship with your readers than you do with your TV viewers, and it's a much more intimate one. You know, they commit to you because they have to spend a lot of time hearing your voice if they're going to read your whole book. Yeah, yeah. I I really like that, and I love having kids come up to me yeah. and talk to me about characters and books and suggestions for new plots it's fun in your early days it might well have been that animals were more important in your home than humans i think oh for sure um <laughs> for sure claire uh, lovely to chat and just ramble really this has been a, a ramble uh, and i've appreciated it greatly and i know that our listeners will you're a real superstar hugely admired and 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 much loved which to be both is a great achievement thank you you're very kind mark thank you very much Ah, my thanks to the brilliant Claire Balding for her time. And she did say before we recorded that she hates talking about herself. But hey, she does it damn well. There are many miles in those legs yet, I suspect. Now, next week, it's Nicholas Brody, Bobby Axelrod and Major Dick Winters all in one as we welcome Damien Lewis to the show. You're getting to understand why we called it Not Just Cricket. Subscribe to Not Just Cricket in this feed or on any other platform where you find your podcasts and expect new episodes every Thursday. This is a Message Heard production. Our producer is Eva Krisiak and the music is composed by Matt Huxley.